Hey everybody, I'm Eric, although I've also blogged under the name Revolver. And I'm Sean. And we're the Verta Guys. We're checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo Comics, starting with the big three, Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. And today we are covering Hellblazer issues three through five. A smattering of early stories from writer Jamie Delano. And artist John Ridgway. And covers by Dave McKeon. So, these stories, although they have some threads linking them together, are not really any one story arc. We're actually basically going to be covering three standalone issues today. Yeah. We get the barest hints of what's going to become a story arc in the upcoming issues, but these are basically three episodic little tales from John Constantine's life. Okay, and we start on the first page of Hellblazer number three, which is titled going for it, where there's a guy running, and he is not doing too well. No, we have a guy here by the name of Roger Randall, who's some kind of stockbroker? Yeah, he's yeah. an investment banker type. He's having a run, but he's having a bad go of it. He's made a couple of bad deals and had a couple of unpleasant events in his life that have stripped away most of his fortune. Yeah, so he's gotten unlucky recently, and uh, now he owes a bunch of money to, among others, a group called Mammon Investments. The narration tells us events are overtaking him. And events are not the only ones overtaking him, as a pair of yuppies run up behind him. So the art here is, combined with their narration, does a really good job of sort of having his, his physical run... And, and the way that he's, like, breaking down from this workout he's giving himself correspond to his, his loss of financial health. Yeah, I think so. His ongoing uh, loss of control and sense of panic, as expressed by the forward motion, is conveyed really nicely in these panels. Now, the name Mammon Investments will sound familiar. I mean, Mammon is a demon who appears not infrequently across all sorts of pop culture, but especially the idea of this like financial body that goes under the name Mammon will be really familiar to readers of Jonathan Hickman's Black Monday Murders, which is a currently running series by Image. All right. So these two yuppies have caught up with Roger Randall, and while he struggles to maintain the pace, they are keeping up tirelessly machine-like. Yeah, and they basically uh, race him until he drops dead. Yeah, come on, let's try for the burn. And he runs until he collapses, his shoes smoking. Yeah, and then I, I think, do they lick up his blood? Yeah, uh, some blood kind of comes out of his mouth here, and the two devil yuppies here are named Rod and Bella. Bella takes a finger full of his blood, and Rod has a lick of it, and then they mark it in a book. And, yeah, and that, uh, that guy's tongue, the drawing of Rod's tongue is just super <laughs> disturbing on the bottom of this page. Yeah, and as Roger collapses, we get a sight in the background that gives us sort of the other main theme of this issue. A poster which says, vote conservative on June 11th. We'll put the pound back in your pocket. Where someone has scrawled their graffiti by taking it out of mine. Right. I want to point out that this issue takes place on June 11th, 1987, which is, slight spoiler warning here, the date of Thatcher and the Conservative Party's third consecutive win. 
the issue came out in March 1988, so they already knew how this was going to resolve. Right. It's already in the past at the time of this writing. But the idea here is that Hell is feeling pretty pretty confident about a third Thatcher term Yeah, in the UK. Yeah, this is a very they live issue with the devil yuppies. What do you mean by that? I'm not familiar. So that was a movie starring Roddy Roddy Piper about the idea that yuppies are all actually invading aliens and Piper acquires a pair of sunglasses that let him see that they're actually aliens and they're, they're running society so as to steal the wealth and the life of poor people. So that's the movie where he and another wrestler have, like, a 20-minute fight scene just because they really liked filming the fight scene. Well, it's and Keith David. Even though they're actually on the same side in the, in the overall story of the movie. Uh, more or less. <laughs> it is one of the great all-time fight scenes, and it's very funny. You could argue that it serves very little purpose. That's where Piper is trying to get Keith David to put on the sunglasses, and Keith David isn't having any of it. And, you know, why not just put on the sunglasses? But at that time, Piper has already gunned down the population of a bank, so he's really not having anything from him. That's why. Oh, I see. He's sort of injured his own credibility. Yeah. Well, anyway, so it's election day here, and we get some of Constantine's patented noir dialogue. Yeah. John is rather depressed over the election because it looks good for the conservative party. Yeah, and he's found out about what happened to uh, our friend Roger, Randall, from a source of his, a, a guy named Ray, who he describes as camp as Christmas and good as gold. And these names are kind of getting a little confusing here. We've got Roger, Ray, and Rod. Yeah, that's a good point. But anyway, for some distraction from the election, he decides to go see his old friend Ray Mond, who he describes as an old queen. Roger, I'm sorry, Ray... Ray is, in fact, a gay man. See, I told you it was confusing. God damn it. Anyway, John uses some language here that's not 100% PC, but Ray is his friend. And I'm not sure that it's been revealed at this point, but John is himself a bisexual man. Oh, okay. See, I didn't know that. Okay. So, he starts investigating the spot where Roger's untimely demise happens, and he spots the guys from Mammon Investments. At this point... You know, demons in disguise as yuppies. Yeah, Ray tells him that there are dead yuppies in Spittlefields, and John is surprised to discover that there are yuppies in Spittlefields. <laughs> I looked up this neighborhood to try to figure out what John was thinking, and what I discovered is that nowadays it's an artistic, gentrified kind of neighborhood, a process which was apparently just beginning, as John doesn't believe that the uh, neighborhood is good enough for there to be yuppies. Right, yeah, I think at some point, and we're jumping ahead in the comic book a little bit, but at some point he declares that they're not even gentrifying, they're slumming. Yeah. But first, we get a cutaway to the Financial District of Hell. An elite club in the Financial District of Hell. That's one of my favorite lines from this comic book, <laughs> is just that, that place description. We uh, come to Blathoxy, the Lord of Flatulence. Yeah, this is a rather nauseating character. A demon in the form of a big, massively overweight guy in an old-fashioned waistcoat. He looks kind of boss tweed. Yeah, he's, he's not attractive. And he's lording over his demons, his demon stockbrokers. Well, uh, constantly belching, because that's what he's like. He is the lord of flatulence, and, you know, you don't, you don't get there by, by resting on your, on your farts. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta constantly show off your fart capabilities. If you want and to your belches. And your belches. Exactly. So he threatens some of his demons that if they screw up the balance of the market, 
you'll spend the next millennia slapping out corpse meat in a fast food joint. Well, I really hope he's talking about the hell fast food joints. <laughs> oh, jeez, me too. I didn't even think about it that way. So, back on Earth uh, in Spitalfields, Constantine breaks into these mammon guys flat. Yeah, he's got a, uh, a couple of lines here describing the concept of gentrification. Okay, so yuppies are moving into the old rundown areas and making them fashionable, but only where they can make a profit. The property's got to be worth developing. There's not even a view here. This is more like some outpost of prosperity, giving the finger to the starving wilderness all around it. The bastards are slumming it. And he's, he's interrupted in his espionage when he hears an awful sound coming from within. Yeah, this is a CD that the demon yuppies are listening to, called Tears of Atlantis Reawaken the Desiccated Souls of Hiroshima. <laughs> Basically, we find out in this vaguely cute little scene here that, first of all, the demons refer to each other as lust partners. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we get their full names here, which are Rodney, Buos, Ganglia, and Belladonna. <laughs> But also, they apparently just listen to the sounds of human misery on on CD as their form of music. Yes, and their house is richly decorated with things like fetus-skinned sundrapes, hand-sewn by corrupted nuns of the Brides of Judas Order. The amusing turn on this page is the discovery that the demon yuppies are not just pretending to be yuppies to exploit humanity. They're demons. They're also actual yuppies. Also actual. Yeah. This thing about them listening to, like, screams of misery as their music seemed really pointed to me. And I wondered if it had some kind of equivalent in, you know, the sort of music that was popular with yuppies in the 80s, but I'm not sure. Right. This is a very unsubtle political issue. You could argue over whether it's too unsubtle. I think before John starts talking about it, it's just at the right level of blunt. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this is an entertaining issue, but I don't think the storytelling here is quite as sophisticated as it was even in Hunger. And we're going to see some more of Jamie Delano's not particularly sharp satire in issue number five, which is about Vietnam. Mm. It's interesting you say that. I, I did think that this issue was finding a unique voice more so than the initial story arc. It's not subtle, but it gave me an understanding of why this had a place at the time that it came out. Well, yeah, he's certainly like an outspoken political voice. And that's, you know, that's always nice to see. Mm-hmm. Also, it's it's worth noting that this issue is, it doesn't have any of the racially problematic stuff that you saw in the first Hellblazer story arc. And again, that we're going to see in issue number five. Right, right. So the two devil yuppies decide to go out slumming and John decides to follow. Yeah, they're going to go to an election party at a place called The Pit. And Constantine shadows behind them. And he's, he's pretty effective in his stealth here. <laughs> he uh, slips on something on the stairs and bounces his butt all the way down. Well, okay, so that part wasn't so great. But he manages to follow them all the way from their flat to the club that they go to without, uh, without them, you know, getting wise. True, true. So he heads into the place, which turns out, despite the name, to be a trendy wine bar full of yuppies. All devil yuppies, you think? Yeah, I think so, because when he has a, a taste of, of what's on offer for beverages, we don't actually find out what it is, but he seems quite appalled and shouts out, Jesus Christ, and then the whole place gives him the stink eye. <laughs> right, he makes the, uh, 
the appropriate analogy. It's as if I'd sworn in church. Suddenly, all the devil yuppies turn to surround John. Well, let me jump back just a second to also note that this club also has lampshades made of skin. Oh, the lamp with the dragon tattoo. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it it took me a minute to follow that. The lampshade has a tattoo on it because it is made of human skin. But just when all the demons are turning on John, some lady catches their attention instead. She's bombed out of her mind, uh, according to Constantine, and is basically begging everybody for a drink because she's lost all her money. And she's making no secret of the fact that she's lost all her money, which is probably not a a good decision, given the company she's in. Yeah. While the jerks swarm around her, the heat's off me, Constantine notes. Rod and Bella make their way over and point out a clause of her contract with Mammon Investments. You must forfeit all intangibles in perpetuity. Basically, it allows Mammon to foreclose on her soul, which they waste no time doing. And the art here of this lady losing her soul is actually pretty well done. I've expressed my doubts about John Ridgway before on this podcast, but, but this part's looking pretty cool. Yeah, I like some of the descriptions on this page, too. I like the description of the cooking smells slithering out of the kitchen. And John's line, This lot are just a bunch of filthy rich cokehead dilettante Satanists. <laughs> yeah, I think Jamie Delano can get a little purple at times, mm-hmm. but if he puts it in Constantine's mouth, it always seems to work a lot better. I think that's somewhat true. John's character is one who describes things that way, and is that cynical, really works. So John manages to stumble out of the trendy demon wine bar. Yeah, this lady has provided him with a distraction, and he books. And he runs to the nearest sanctified place, a Salvation Army hostel. Oh, okay. I, th- I thought it was just a just your basic church. But in any case, the demons can't follow him in there. Yep. John manages to get enough time ahead of them that he he can return home and set up his mystical defenses, but it looks like he says, he looks like I won't have time to vote. He also notes while he's talking about politics, the political climate's perfect for them. Prophet is definitely the top god of the 80s, where monetarism reads Satanism. Nothing subtle about that. No. So John gets back to his place, and after setting up his mystical defenses, he uses a ritual to summon Blafoxy. Yeah, uh, and it's, uh, it's not a particularly reverent ritual, he shouts out, Wake up, Blathoxy, you bladder of bile. It's me, John Constantine. I want a word with you. On top of which, he mentions to himself, I've never bothered with the cats for this ritual. Too hard to catch, and they shriek like fury when you impale them. Well, there's no Sam Keith uh, throwing <laughs> this issue, so... <laughs> so it would be just unmanageable if he decided to chase a cat. Right, yeah. Yeah. Well, it turns out that that may not have been the best idea, as John gets a stiff demon Mater D instead of the demon he intended. Yeah, and the Mater D says that his ceremony was a little lacking, which we probably could have guessed. He commands me to inform you that your ritual was incompetent and insulting. You should have used the cats. <laughs> but this major domo escorts him down into hell, which looks really scary in this art. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's got to head down a long, narrow staircase made of human faces to get into Blathoxy's realm. And he meets with Blathoxy in what appears to be a giant steam room. 
Well, I also want to point out this panel right before they go down the stairs as John conjures himself a tie. That's kind of cool. Now, he's thinking to himself that he has bested Blathoxy before, so the demon will be wary. But if he plays things right, he'll be able to, to play him, which is what he needs to do. And he tells Blathoxy that he's come to sell his soul. This is the first time that I've seen John offer to sell his soul, but it won't be the last. <laughs> no, indeed. Blathoxy concludes from this gesture that he must have some kind of inside knowledge that the left is going to win. Right. In the UK elections, that is. You think the left wing is going to win the election, and the UK soul market is going to crash. Lothoxy is pretty furious that Constantine is attempting to dupe him and has him thrown out of hell. Yeah, but nonetheless, he manages to undermine Lothoxy's confidence, which does end up crashing the soul market. John is thrown back into his apartment, which he finds stuffed with the demons who are chasing him. Yeah, he, he said that his protection circle was a little bit careless, and, and as it turns out, he was right. The demons knock John out and hang him upside down from the ceiling while they watch the election results. He also has a sword that, uh, that he tries waving at them, which they melt into a dollar sign. <laughs> That's a bit cute. Anyway, so yeah, he watches the ele- election results while strung upside down, and the demons are swinging him about. Yeah, they plan to make him into seat covers for a BMW, but first they're going to make him watch Thatcher win. Yep. But when Blathoxy realizes what he's done, he comes in and kills all the mammon demons. Yep, apparently the infernal dollar has been wiped out, and he blames the crash of the soul market on these, these minor devils and drags them all back to hell. John is hanging upside down from the ceiling, and Blathoxy turns the floor into lava to suck down all the demons. Yeah, but he can't kill Constantine because he would lose face. It would basically be revealing that Constantine got the better of him once again. Right. If he kills John, then people will know that John was the one who bluffed him. Don't think I've overlooked you, Constantine. One day I shall pluck your soul and wear it as a buttonhole. That's a pretty good line. Yep, John is overjoyed to have defeated the demons, but he's still in something of an unpleasant position. Yeah, and we... Don't really see how he gets out of this one. It just sort of leaves him on a, with an uncomfortable look on his face. Stuck in front of a TV showing election results until dawn. Right, right. so what did you think of this issue? I generally liked that one. Again, I thought it had more of a distinctive voice and approach than, than the previous story. I also want to call out the cover of this issue. It's a Dave McKeon cover, and it shows Constantine walking on the street in front of a a picture of Thatcher that has been defaced with demonic teeth. Looks like they put horns on her, too. Yeah. And overhead is a sign. A Surgeon General's warning with the graffiti over it so that it now says, Voting Tory can damage your health. <laughs> yeah, I liked the political stuff of it, but I will say that the level of the satire here is very unsubtle. Oh, absolutely. Well, so that brings us to Hellblazer number four, Waiting for the Man. Yeah, and we open on a character. This is actually the first appearance of a character who's going to be significant for quite some time. This is Gemma Masters. She is Constantine's niece. Right, although we don't know that yet. Right. She is waiting in the playground because she doesn't want to go home. Because her parents are part of something called the Resurrection Crusade. Her stepfather has a job selling pyramids. (laughs) 
Right, yeah. So I guess that's her way of thinking it's a pyramid scheme. Yeah, her childlike understanding of it. She's not allowed to watch TV because it's all advertisements for Satan and there's basically nothing to do at the house. Yeah, she's a city girl and is not liking it out here in the burbs. So John Ridgway's art here of, uh, of Gemma sitting in the park is actually very well done, very evocative. Yeah. I think the, the richness that makes, his, that makes his mystical goings-on a little bit lurid sometime mm-hmm. really works for this sort of more subdued scene. Yeah, there's not a lot going on here, but the scene has an emotional resonance. So we leave that page with Gemma thinking that she can't win, and we uh, turn the page to find Constantine thinking that he can't lose. Constantine is apparently beating a bunch of gentlemen at pool. He seems to be a remarkably good gambler when he wants to be. And, you know, this two-page spread of John Constantine gambling and doing really well, I want to bring it up as an example of a repeated problem that I have with this, with Hellblazer around this time, which is that it does not look like a two-page spread at first glance. Oh yeah, this happens a bunch of times in these issues, that this actually continues across both pages, left to right, before going back down to the next line. There's kind of no way to tell that. It does have panel borders at the page split. Yeah, normally in the visual language of comic books, if a scene is going to be a two-page spread, that's pretty clearly signaled by the fact that there's art that will continue across the median. But in this case, it's more of just a weird panel layout where we go all the way across the tops of two pages before we come to the middle line. Right. So it can be a bit difficult to follow these pages the first time. You can accidentally spoil a couple of story beats for yourself as well. Yeah, and just waste time trying to decipher a page that's... You know, another comic that has a similar problem but is much more recent is The Wicked and Divine. Okay. Which, in certain times, seems to have the same problem of, like... It's a comic that uses some fairly obscure storytelling at times. So you read it one way and it doesn't make sense, and then you read it the other way and it doesn't really make sense <laughs> that way either sometimes. Okay. Anyway, it's, it's not clear if John is using magic to cheat at gambling, but he's doing pretty well. And Chaz is having something of a worse time as he has apparently been playing a slot machine that's broken. But after John messes with it for a moment, it, it spits out a jackpot for Chaz. Yeah, uh, that seemed like magic to me. John heads out of the bar and goes looking for something to eat. And he passes by a couple of characters that we've seen before. The British boys are back. Yeah, and they're painting graffiti that says, British boys kill, and then a racial slur. (laughs) Right, John takes their spray can from them and spray paints one in the face and tosses the can over a wall. Pity it wasn't mace, he says. At this point, he rounds the corner and runs into Zed. This is a weird lady. And she gets a full-page sort of introductory panel here. She is wearing a zebra-striped shirt. She has black hair with white stripes at the temples. And she's sitting in front of a piece of street art she's apparently made that makes it look as though there's light coming out of a door behind her and a man standing silhouetted in that door. Right, and she's got 
spray cans sitting right next to her, and she's apparently sitting here admiring her handiwork, although she's got her back to it. It kind of seems like she's waiting for John. I don't know if she knew to expect him or what. Yeah, I even thought that he might have conjured her. Right. For a minute. Zed is a mysterious character, and this sort of ambiguous introduction makes her even harder to read. Yeah. Meanwhile, back on the playground, Gemma is almost wishing that some creepo would take her away. Yeah, and she makes a comment here which is sort of unsubtle about the American men on the religious videos that her family's pyramid scheme sells. They all have that funny look in their eyes, glassy like the kids who sniff glue. Hmm. Just then, three girls appear. They appear a little older than Gemma, but not much. Yeah, and they're the wives of somebody. Yeah, speaking of a creepo. Right, and they basically decide to fulfill her wish and take Gemma to this creepy man. Yeah, they invite her to come be a wife like them at his house where they live. It's great. It's a really boss, neat house. He brings us lots of presents, and he's hardly ever there. All of which sounds good to Gemma. So she decides that she'll go along and marry him too. <laughs> right. This is a remarkably bad decision, but she is a very small girl. Yeah. What What can you do? She's the comic book's designated victim, so... It's true. And it's not as if Jamie Delano doesn't put forth some effort to make it psychologically realistic, at least, why she would make such a bad decision. Mm -hmm. He explains to us that she has a very unhappy home life. Yeah. And intense feelings of rebellion. Yeah, and I think she's sort of seeking a, a way to grab for attention, and if getting herself into a little trouble does that, then that works for her. Meanwhile, back in London, Zed is being mysterious and eating a lot of food. And it seemed to you here as if she was, like, supernaturally hungry? I don't know. John does comment that she eats a lot of food. Yeah, it's part of the reason that this is difficult is that I don't understand what the, what the money is worth in this story. He says something like she's gone through 20 oh, yeah. quids worth of curry. Yeah, after 20 quids worth of curry, all I know is her name. And her name is Zed, and that's not even her actual name, spoiler warning. So, she's being very mysterious indeed. Yeah. Now, if 20 quids worth of curry is, you know, I don't know if that's double, if that's a double portion, or a, you know, five times a portion, or if it's one quarter portion. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were going there. Well, the point is that it's... Again, this story beat was kind of difficult for me to read because obviously Zed is putting away a lot of curry, but is it supernaturally so? We don't know. John asks where she's from. She's not a Londoner. She's not really interested in answering. It's not where we come from that counts. It's where we've gotten to. Yeah, so they flirt for a while here, and she ends up inviting Constantine back to her place. Yeah. He notes that... She's so young and yet so cynical, pointing out that she's younger than he is, despite having the white in her hair. She replies, I may be young, but I'm not a child. Yeah, I'm not really sure where this story with Zed is going. Meanwhile, the wives take Gemma to a house which is notably dirty, and she points out that it has a smell. 
Yeah, they say you'll get used to it. You won't notice the smell either once you're married. Oh, yeah. That's, that's some pretty intense foreshadowing there. Yeah. So all four of them pile into a big bed. Yeah, and again, it, it seems sort of like there's something supernatural going on here with how suddenly and completely Gemma feels overtaken by sleep. Yeah, it seems like they've put something of a whammy on her. And here's where we get an indication that things are considerably creepier than we already thought they were, as one of the girls shows off her wedding ring, a black scar around her neck. Yeah, that's really scary. Meanwhile, back at Zed's place... Looks like Zed has kind of a fancy loft here. Yeah, and she's got kind of a graffiti collage of the faces of many people that she's seen painted all across one wall. One of the faces, John notices, is his own. Right, he finds himself and he comments... Struth? <laughs> Struth? <laughs> Oh, yeah, she says, they're all real, people I see on the street. I collect them. John says, here, I know some of these. He sees his own face and says, Struth! <laughs> Before things can get intimate, Constantine hears about the missing Gemma on the radio, which seems to turn itself on, just for plot convenience. Yeah, it's not entirely clear what the boundaries of it are, but it does seem like Zed has some kind of supernatural ability to be in the right place or know what to expect. Oh, so that's her, why she knows to face the, the corner and not the wall after she's painted her graffiti on the street. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> she sort of loosely implies back in the diner scene that she may have been looking for John, but at the same time, she doesn't ever come out and say it. So it's very possible here that she's operating from some kind of augury or then again, maybe it's just a fate thing. We really don't know at this point. But she does have a radio that turns itself on when something that they need to hear comes over it. Yeah, and Constantine is instantly interested. And it's at this point that he reveals that Gemma is actually his sister's kid. Right. He asks Zed to drive because, as it turns out, John can't drive. This is something that we've seen a few times before. He usually gets Chaz to chauffeur him about. This time Zed is going to have to drive him to Liverpool, where Gemma has gone missing. Right, and they're in London, so it's about 90 minutes away. We cut to the house of Tony and Cheryl Masters, Gemma's parents. Or her mother and her stepfather, to be more precise. Yeah. And Cheryl is a wreck, and she's making sure that the house goes the same way. In her fright, she's smashing things around the house. Yeah, and the, uh, the righteous crusaders are really being of no help here. Yeah, this is apparently the cult leader type of guy, and he's saying thousands of your fellow crusaders are linked in the pyramid of prayer. Rest yourself, child. Trust in the Lord. We'll see how that strategy works out for him. Yeah, and even Cheryl doesn't seem to be buying into it, as she slaps him in the face for sort of implying that it might be her fault. He, in turn, replies that her husband should probably restrain her. Nice guy. Yeah. So then we cut to Zed and Constantine on their drive to Liverpool. Yeah, they've borrowed Chaz's taxi and are driving through the night. But not Chaz. I guess Constantine wanted the opportunity to make a little more time with Zed. Perhaps. 
Or maybe, again, maybe it's the fate thing. A little while down the road, Zed's going to turn out to have some talents that prove to be useful for the search. Although, we didn't know about that yet. Yeah, and I gotta say, this scene of them on the highway, this really reinforces how much John Bridgeway's art has improved in this issue over where it was during the, the Hunger story arc. Yeah, it's a very moody scene. Interesting use of light here. And we get a conversation between Zed and John. Zed asks, what's your niece like? And John thinks to himself, I'm glad she used the present tense. They go on to talk about the fact that Constantine gets along pretty well with Gemma. She's a good kid. But he doesn't get along at all with her stepfather, Tony. Yeah, these couple of pages have made it pretty clear that Tony's a heel. Yeah. Yeah, and he and John already have an unpleasant relationship. Meanwhile... While Zed drives, John decides to get in a bit of positive dreaming. No point in us both being knackered. She replies, now I'm a bloody taxi driver? Meanwhile, Gemma wakes up in the eerie house. The other wives are all still asleep. And yet, a moment later, they seem to meet her in the next room and start dressing her in her wedding dress. She finds that she's crying, but she seems to ignore it, as she doesn't quite know why. And they dress her for the wedding. So when Constantine and Zed arrive at the master's house, a cop tries to stop them, but... Constantine just says that he's family. Then when he gets inside, the cult tell him that he's forbidden to use any black magic. Yeah, Constantine replies, Forbid away, chum, and don't give me that Dennis Wheatley black arts crap. <laughs> Does this count as another accent? I wasn't even trying that time, but it may have come out a little bit as one. <laughs> he's supposed to be Liverpudlian, damn it. So Constantine... <laughs> so Constantine just ignores their prohibitions, and divines Gemma's location, while at the same time, Zed uses automatic drawing to produce a sketch of the house that Gemma is going to be found in. Yeah. So Zed is clearly full of surprises. Yeah. And this shows off that Zed is something special, although it also seems a little bit convenient how quickly they're able to to figure out where Gemma's going to be. It sort of seems like the story is speeding us up just to slow us down again? Perhaps, although it doesn't seem to be that convenient. On the next page, they do mention that it takes them all day of searching as they can't find a house that looks like the one in the picture. And the area that John is able to scry is a rather large one. Well, that's true, but that's kind of what I mean about how the... it's Instead of devoting a lot of the issue to actual detective narrative, we have them basically figure out in one page where to go looking for Gemma, and that allows other pages to be devoted to things like a 90-minute drive from London or, you know, wandering around the neighborhood, basically clueless. Or more of a slow burn as to what's happening to Gemma, and it's true, it allows them to arrive exactly at the right time. Right. Whatever their method was, it allowed them to arrive at exactly the right time. So they didn't spend a lot of energy on John doing detective things, even though he is to some extent a detective, and they could have shown off his cleverness here. Exactly. Yeah, that was my thought about the whole thing. Meanwhile, back at the house, the quote-unquote husband turns out to be a soldiery-looking dude. Yeah, this is a big lug, and he asks her name, she gives it, and he asks her to marry him and stay forever. 
She says yes, it's what she's supposed to say, and he leads her down to the basement of the creepy old house. So she's definitely under a spell here, because as much as she seems rebellious and wanting to get into trouble, it doesn't really seem like her idea to immediately say yes to being his wife. Yeah, I I don't think so either. John and Zed eventually find a kid who has seen the house, who recognizes the drawing of the house, and he leads them to it by secret routes known only by children and cats. That's kind of cute. He refuses to go in, though, not even for 50 quid. Right, they're paying him five quid for taking them to the house, and he says not even for 50 would he go inside. Again, neither of us have any idea how much a quid is in 1988. (laughs) It's probably a lot when you're a little kid. (laughs) Anyway, they pay him another five quid to run the message to Cheryl's house that they found Gemma before they head into the house. Yeah, and you know what? The kid actually, he holds up his end, as we're going to find out. Meanwhile, in the house, a very creepy wedding is going on, and at this point we are pretty darn sure that something is wrong. He's got an altar set up to an inverted cross with a goat on the top. I just wrote creepy-ass satanic wedding. Yeah. As if there's another kind of satanic wedding. Well, maybe the reason that Satanism has never really caught on is that they don't reproduce, because as soon as they're married, he starts to strangle her with a rope. Uh, yeah. As the narration tells us, it's time to tie the knot. Oh, that's terrible. (laughs) That's pretty bad. (laughs) Just at this moment, Constantine enters the house, and he races to the top of the stairs to find the three other wives dead in the bed. Yeah, so that's, to me, that's one of the creepiest things in the entire issue, is just that she slept in that bed all night with the three dead wives. Oh, for sure. I think that, I think that part is very effective. That the idea that he goes upstairs first, instead of running right to where Gemma is in the house, and finds, you know, the, the reveal that the three other wives were dead the whole time. Yeah. In the basement, we get this narration from Gemma. A warm darkness wells up around her. In the darkness, something is moving. Something that wants to tell her its name. And we get a shot here of what looks like Gemma cast in the silhouette of something... something dark. John rushes into the basement, and the Satanist creep instantly discards Gemma and hurls... An offering plate at John and clocks him in the head. Yeah, he's a really good fighter, and Constantine even comments on how this guy basically reacts without missing a beat to throw this plate at his head, as if he was expecting him the whole time. Yeah, at the same time, there's something very simple about him. The way that he reacts to Constantine, I know you, you're bad, you want to hurt me, take my wives away. Yeah, he does sound kind of dumb. He doesn't seem to fully grasp the situation and what he's doing. Seems like a big dumb idiot. So he's damn near killing Constantine when Zed taps him on the shoulder and clocks him with a bottle of wine. Yeah, this is a really great panel. John tells us, when women fight, they don't pull any punches. She makes a terrible mess of him. But even if I could get up, I wouldn't try to stop her. I'd probably join in. So Zed beats the dude half to death, and at this point we see that his body has the words Damnation Army tattooed on it, which Constantine takes as a dark omen. Yeah. Well, Zed recognizes the Damnation Army brand. She says she saw it sprayed on a wall in Paddington where someone had burned a tramp. 
John and Zed gather up Gemma and head outside, and to their surprise, the kid actually did run and tell Cheryl. The sect shows up, annoyed at John for saving the day with his conjurer's ways. Yeah, and basically, just to kind of seem like they had something to do with the outcome, it looks like the cultists decide to burn the place down. Yeah, Tony and Cheryl and the cult leader fellow have brought with them a number of brawny guys wearing t-shirts that say God's Warriors. You know, I can't help but notice that the way that God's Warriors is written on these guys' chests and the way Damnation Army was written on the other guys' chests look almost exactly the same. Yeah, that's kind of interesting, and I'm not sure yet how deliberate that was. They burn down the house with the guy in it, which doesn't particularly upset John. Constantine and Zed retire to a motel where they have a little conversation about the Damnation Army. Something's going on, John thinks. Something I should have noticed before it got this close. You're falling down on the job, John. Constantine also asks Zed if she's ever run into the Resurrection Crusaders before. And she says no, but he says he can tell that she's lying. People who aren't afraid of the truth make terrible liars. Um, as he takes a look at the half-naked Zed in the bathroom mirror, kind of peeking through the door, he notes that she doesn't have any brands, but she is lying, and decides to investigate further. Of course, when John decides to investigate further, you know what that means. It means he's going to wait about three or four weeks until the crisis reaches a boiling point. <laughs> I thought this one was a, a pretty effective chiller of an issue. Yeah, very, very spooky. Again, John Ridgway's art is better in this issue than we've seen it for most of the run so far. And even though Jimmy Delano seems to kind of be juggling the plot a little bit, speeding it up and slowing it down through convenience, at the same time, the writing is also very effective at conveying the, the mood that he's going for. Yeah, it does hook us by putting a child in danger, and a relative of John's that we've never heard of before to boot. But, I don't know, it didn't feel terribly exploitative to me, maybe because I didn't really ever doubt that they were going to find her in time. Yeah, I can't say it felt exploitative to me either. Also, I think this early in the run of his own book, you can get away with introducing relatives that we've never heard of, more so than you'd be able to a little later on. Yeah, it's true. So it was nice to take some time, too, to set up that John does have relatives. He has people. He has connections with people in this world that he cares about. And we're going to come back to Cheryl and Gemma a number of times through the series. The other big thing that this issue accomplishes is introducing us to Zed. And she's very mysterious and compelling at this point to the reader. I think maybe we're not given quite enough to go on about her, especially given the ambiguity and the mystical nature of her and her meeting with John. But... She's definitely an enigma. She seems to have an agenda, and we're not sure what it is, and we're not sure to what extent her encounter with Constantine was arranged in the first place. You did seem to have the feeling that there was nothing there. It's more than a mystery that we've been given nothing to go on. <laughs> yeah, well, the storyline leaves us wanting more, and unfortunately, Zed does not appear in the next issue. So that brings us to When Johnny Comes Marching Home, written by Jamie Delano and drawn by John Ridgway. I thought this was probably the worst issue of Hellblazer that I have read yet. Yeah, I, and... <laughs> I mean, we're, we haven't recapped it yet, but I really agree. 
I was probably going to say exactly the same thing. This is my least favorite of the run so far. We'll get to why, but I think it's a decent story that suffers for having John Constantine in it. We open on a very unusual setting. It's August 10th, 1968, Quang Tri Province, Vietnam. While Lieutenant Frank Ross is marching through the jungle, he's having a pretty bad time of it. And right here on the first page, we've got an Asian racial slur. Yeah, there's quite a bit of that, and this is also extremely rapey narration. The heat is alive. It smothers him with its breathless body, raping his skin with a needle-barbed tongue. Eh, it's a little over the top. Yeah, we don't really need that. We also don't need the leaden ejaculations that follow when the platoon thinks they see some enemies. Right. This guy, Craig Anders, thinks he sees the enemy and starts firing. Quite abruptly, we cut to August 10th, 1987, in Liberty, Iowa. That's 19 years later. And Liberty, Iowa seems to have been taken over by the same Resurrection Crusaders mentioned last issue. Yeah, we see this older fellow setting up a banner, which reads, Liberty welcomes home her boys. It's strange that they're doing so, so long after the war. But as the narration tells us, they've waited and prayed, and now something is happening. The Resurrection Crusaders were right. The Lord has taken charge. The government sure as hell hasn't helped, but the prayers have. All the cheated parents of liberty feel it. Soon they will rejoice. The lost sons of liberty are coming home from the war. This old fellow notices something moving in the corn, and as he parts the corn stalks to see what it is, he is surprised to be shot with an M16. On the other side, he finds a burning village in Vietnam with Craig Anders firing into his chest. Yeah, so it sort of comes out that the troop in Vietnam made up of the boys from this town went missing in the middle of the war and they never came home. But the townsfolk have now turned to the Resurrection Crusaders who are going to pray them back. Yeah, I'll point out a little bit of foreshadowing here before the old man gets killed that glares over at the interstate highway. It was the damned road that killed Liberty. Meanwhile, though, the troops have failed to even notice who they shot. They see him as, uh, well, as I'm not going to use their words, but as an older Vietnamese man. And they get moving again. So that brings us to John Constantine. Actually, that brings us to Frank Ross again. Oh. 20 years older and working in the Liberty Corner gas station on the Interstate Highway. He's taking some comfort from a bottle of whiskey and thinking about how the rest of Liberty resents him for making his living from the interstate instead of from farming. Yeah, you gotta wonder, like, if the interstate killed the town, wouldn't that imply that they were reliant on traffic for a lot of their work before the interstate got set up? Reliant on traffic? Well, if the interstate killed the town... The implication there is that now people take the interstate, they bypass the old main road yeah. that, that would have brought them through Liberty. That's going to be obviously bad for the economy of Liberty, but if they all make their money from farming, I don't see why it should matter to them. That's a good point. I guess I understood the old man's thought as more along the lines of just sort of generally blaming the interstate for connection to the outside world in the sense that the boys being taken away from Liberty is what killed the town. The boys having to go to Vietnam. Oh, I see. Well, I, I guess that makes sense. Frank's never quite gotten over the war. He has flashbacks sometimes, and he knows that his wife, Nancy, 
would never accept it if she found out the truth about Frank Ross, the war hero. And then a familiar character arrives at Liberty Corner. John Constantine steps off the bus. Right, and we get another crossover when he mentions in his internal monologue Swamp Thing. Yeah, he was in the States to check up on Swamp Thing, but then he read in the Inquirer the Resurrection Crusaders had come to this town and decided to check it out. He's on to the Resurrection Crusaders after their involvement in last issue's fiasco. As John steps into the Liberty Corner, he finds himself face-to-face with a gun. Frank Ross is deep in a Vietnam flashback and nearly kills John before he's talked out of it by his wife, Nancy. And this is another two-page spread that really doesn't look like it's going to be. Yeah. Also, the way that Ridgeway draws Frank Ross is not the greatest. He really looks like hell, but it, it seems like a part of why he looks like hell is that John Ridgway is going in a sort of self-consciously sloppy direction. In a way, I think so. He's definitely drawn as slovenly, but he's also got a degree of chiaroscuro over him that's more than almost anybody else in the comic. Yeah. Yeah, and the top right corner of this two-page spread isn't necessary at all. It shows John coming into the store and being shot at by Frank. Whereas if you ignore it, John comes into the store and Frank is pointing the gun at him. It's a difficult page to read. Yeah, and you could you could easily miss it and, and have the story still make sense, so you could easily miss it. So John says that he should get out now, but it's too late and he's already plugged into the claustrophobic horror of this place. Yeah. Nancy kind of tries to explain things to John, try to, to apologize for Frank, and she tells him how there's a little bit of tension because they make their living from the interstate, unlike the rest of the town. And John notably lies to her at this point as to what he's doing in Liberty. He tells her that he got off the bus to take a pee and they left without him. But she tells him that this TV preacher says he's going to pray to bring back the boys who were lost in the war. Got them psyched up like a football coach. John narrates, Overhead, ominous thunderheads gather like tumors. It's here, all right. You can feel it. Bulbous, bloated, the irresistible tension, the promise of emotional lightning. I like that line. (laughs) I mean, I wrote it down. I guess I must have sort of liked it too, but I'm not sure if I liked it as narration for this comic book or, you know, as a soft R&B CD. (laughs) It's over the top, but John's narration tends to be, and it conveys a certain atmosphere. John finds a room in a motel. The motel cabin is like a set from Psycho, he thinks. And the town is a ghost town. This may be the right place, but it feels like the wrong time. Yeah, he definitely didn't come at Liberty's best weekend. Yeah, and not for the last time this issue, John thinks, whatever is brewing here, I'm not going to be able to stop it. Yeah, so the narration is setting us up to expect what's kind of going to happen is that John is just going to observe the happenings. Yeah. Which, I don't know, it doesn't really fit with what we've seen of his character so far. When Nemeth shows up, he's equally unprepared, but he says, he basically says, well, it's going to be a pretty big mess, but I guess I'd better take care of it. Yeah, and I think that's the problem that I have with this issue. We're maybe getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but it seems like this is an okay story, but John's role in it is, is to be an observer. He's only here because he's forced to be because it's his comic book. And that keeps him out of the action 
in a way that doesn't feel quite right with his character. I mean, we've seen him run away and leave other people to be eaten by demons, but at least he felt bad about it. <laughs> it's well, a way that doesn't quite fit his character, and it's a way that doesn't make him feel like any meaningful part of the story. Yeah, and specifically when he... Whatever limited victory he gave to, to Nemoth in Hunger, that was his way of solving the problem that he could solve. Yeah. You know? In this, he just seems very easily cowed by the whole goings-on here. At one point he says, I'm just a simple English boy. Right. But anyway, while John thinks of himself as merely an observer in this story, Frank wakes up from a Vietnam nightmare, gets his gun, and heads into the cornfield. He's planning an assault on the suspect Hamlet. So we get more banter between Frank and his platoon here. Yeah, he meets up with the unit as he finds himself in the jungle. And you have this very ominous panel of them closing in under the Liberty Welcome as its boys home sign, which they don't even notice, and kind of converging on the hotel. We do get a bit of background on Frank here as he thinks about the fact that he was the only one to survive, the only one to come back to Liberty. And this time he doesn't plan on leaving the unit. This time he'll choose death and Liberty. Inside the hotel... John is watching the Resurrection Crusade on TV with a number of townsfolk. They talk about the fact that it's known to work miracles. It is known. <laughs> this was kind of an interesting development. It's the pyramid of prayer. You've got to pay ten bucks a month and your prayer goes in the computer. Then you have to do these sort of chain letter scripture mailings. As you get more people into the crusade, your prayer moves up to the top of the pyramid. Then it gets cut on coast-to-coast -coast TV. So it, the miracles are directly associated with the pyramid scheme in the way that the crusade runs its business. You can expect a miracle when you've brought enough people into the crusade. Yeah, so, so this part's worthwhile, at least, that we're getting a, a look at the inner workings of the Resurrection Crusaders. And this is the night that the promised miracle is to appear in Liberty. But not the way they wanted it as the unit storms into the hotel and shoots out the lights. I'm off, thinks John as he runs away. <laughs> so we see it from the unit's point of view, and they think they're rounding up the residents of a Vietnamese village. One of them sees John as a young Vietnamese man escaping, and is about to shoot him when another one stops him momentarily, and John manages to get away. John dodges a couple of bullets that dives into the cornfield, as he thinks, anyhow, it's not my bloody war. But in a way, I know it is. Vietnam was everybody's war. A movie war, fought nightly on TV in front rooms around the world. Now the stars of the movie have come home and have taken over the town of Liberty. Yeah, this story, it's a story about Vietnam, but it's also very self-consciously a story about Vietnam movies. Yeah. And I wonder why that is. It's not as if there's a particular character in this story who has seen too many movies. I, I wonder if that's just sort of Jamie Delano's excuse that he's giving himself for writing these Vietnam soldiers in such a cliche way and for covering what seems like such well-trod and familiar ground. Maybe. Maybe that's the way that he engages with the fact that he's writing what is to some extent another movie of Vietnam. In this comic book. Yeah. And John gives us this unsubtle line. Trouble is, they brought the war back with them. 
So yeah, this is well where done. I start to think. So this is where I start to think that this is kind of an interesting story. The idea of the psychological trauma that the vets bring back with them, expressed through literally bringing their younger selves into the town to make war on it. That might have made an interesting story. The biggest problem I have really is that the whole thing is done with so much inevitability and that with Constantine in the mix, his presence adds nothing to it. Right. So that's my biggest problem, too. The other problem is that it doesn't... It just doesn't kind of match for me the way that it's like... It's definitely Frank's post-traumatic stress his psychological problems with the war, but he's not one of the people involved with the Resurrection Crusaders. True. So to whatever extent they're making this happen, we don't get much of a psychological driver there. Yeah, there's a bit of a disconnect there. We see that the groups are unable to talk to each other. The townsfolk try to explain that they're just the soldiers' friends and relatives, glad to see them back, but the soldiers hear them speaking in Vietnamese. Nancy tries to talk to Frank, but he recognizes her as nothing more than a woman. And this is where the comic gets really ugly. Yeah, this part is not good or necessary at all. Basically, Frank decides that he's going to uh, rape this Vietnamese prisoner. That's what he perceives her as, when in reality she's actually his own wife. Right. Because he thinks the darkness isn't frightening once you surrender to it. In hell, after all, you should expect to find demons. Yeah, so that's a pretty nasty scene, and it goes on for about a page and a half. Not in graphic detail, but still sort of exploitative in terms of using this ugly rape for, like, sort of cheap horror and drama. Right. Once again, it's an extremely lurid moment. Yeah. John is only a few feet away in the corn, but he's pretty sure he'll get shot if he intervenes, so he does nothing once again. Yeah, and that just makes this scene... That just makes this scene even worse, you know? Not that it wouldn't have been fucking awful even <laughs> if John had intervened. Like, it still would have been crass and unnecessary. But, right. But having him, having him once again justify to himself doing nothing is... Yeah, it's irritating how passive he's being. It's irritating how repetitive his excuses for not doing anything are getting. Yeah, it, it honestly feels like the writer needs to continually justify that John is doing nothing. I know John's an anti-hero and that he's not super-powered by traditional standards, but he still does, in most of the stories, take chances to try to make things a little better. Yeah, and I think... What this really is a symptom of is the fact that the writer didn't have a full idea for a story here. He doesn't, he doesn't have a full story arc where there's, you know, a problem and a struggle and a solution. It's a story in which the town of Liberty is acted on, but it's not a story in which anyone is acting. Right. So Frank decides that the unit has walked into a hot LZ and calls for napalm. Nancy, meanwhile... Understandably furious with Frank, but not really comprehending what's going on with him, has gotten his gun from the house and threatens to shoot him. And in fact, she actually does shoot him in the leg, but he takes her gun away and kills her. Unfortunate. John, once again, can't bring himself to do anything. Can't bring himself to act. 
At this point, Frank Ross looks up into the desolate sky and finds himself alone in the empty heart of America. To quote? Right. The unit seems to be replaying the events that led to their deaths in Vietnam, complete with Ross having somehow gotten separated from them. In this case, because he's been broken out of the spell, and he finds Nancy's body and realizes what he's done. He still lives, while the war devours everything around. He begs to die with the unit. When John finally steps out of the corn and shouts, It's no good bawling about it, soldier. You'd better shape up. You're an officer. He orders Frank to pick up his weapon and get with the unit, and Ross runs back into the corn. Once again, though, John knows that the ending of this scene is going to be bad, but he can't do anything about it. He manages to climb up on a bridge over the interstate and watch as a gasoline truck comes barreling down the highway, and Frank Ross shoots it. It swerves into the motel and explodes, taking out the entire town. Yeah, and you wonder why when Constantine finally breaks his inactivity, his inaction, he does it in this really kind of hokey way that serves to do nothing but, you know, encourage the bad events that are going to take place. Yeah, you could argue that he tries to make Frank pay a little bit for the crimes of, of the unit and the crimes that he's committed, but he doesn't take the opportunity to try to save anybody. So... We get a pretty well-drawn, at least, two-page spread of the massive explosion and Frank and Constantine both witnessing it. Yeah, and Frank witnesses this as a U.S. Marine Corps jet dropping napalm over the scene where John sees that it's the gasoline truck exploding. One thing is sure, John concludes, I've got to get on those Crusaders' case soon. Yeah, so in a way, like... I guess part of the justification for John to not do much in this issue is that this is Act 1, and it's going to spur him to revenge against the Resurrection Crusaders. Right. Although, uh, again, it's it's not real clear in this issue how much of this is their fault. You know, it seems, yeah. it seems obvious that they've brought some level of magic into the situation, which caused problems. Well... John's need to investigate the crusade was already established by the events with Gemma in the previous issue. And as far as this is concerned, I think this is actually the only story they do that shows that the Resurrection Crusade's prayers have power and are actually making things happen. Yeah, and we're not given any motivation where they decide to do it for any, you know, good or evil reason. It's just Frank Ross has psychological problems you add that to magic, and the whole town gets blown up. I think it's not that uninteresting as a metaphor, but as you said, it's an incomplete story. Yeah. So, John leaves, quote, before the final credits roll, and makes his way to another tiny town in the United States. As he tries to walk back into his life, he finds himself outside a video store, advertising films that show how it really was, such as Platoon, Hamburger Hill, and Full Metal Jacket. Yeah, so Delano is kind of, again, making fun of war movies here, which, you know, Hollywood is not part of this story that we're seeing, you know? It's not like Frank Ross was this guy who saw too many movies. He's a guy who was there and brought the war back with him. So 
it just seems to me as if this making fun of Vietnam War movies is Delano's way of justifying kind of falling completely into cliche in his treatment of Vietnam as a subject, in much the same way that he fell into full cliche about investment bankers in the going for it story. There, at least, I felt like I understood more what he was aiming at. Here, it seems like he's rebuking, to some extent, the desire to, or the urge to empathize with vets and the urge to, to know what it was like by experiencing the Hollywood version of it. Yeah, and maybe he's sort of indicting Vietnam as entertainment, but at the same time, this comic book is the Vietnam War as entertainment. It's true. You know, it's a... It's a little monthly thriller of a comic book where you, you, you expect to pick it up and see something kind of scary and kind of challenging and kind of funny. And, you know, so for it to, to hammer in this way that it's, that it's so ridiculous to treat Vietnam as entertainment while simultaneously doing just that is kind of ridiculous. Right. And I also, I can't help but comparing in my mind, not because not because they're particularly related in reality, but because that's the show we're doing. I have to compare this with the treatment of Vietnam that we're going to get just a few issues down the road in Preacher and how much stronger Preacher is on that count. Yeah, well, Preacher definitely has a story to tell, as we will see. Indeed. I actually couldn't help but wonder if there is a war that's currently on British TV at the time Delano is writing this. And maybe that's, to some extent, what he's really concerned with. Yeah, I'm not sure. In any event, John sees in the video store a veteran with no arms and in a wheelchair. He flashes a peace sign and feels stupid because the vet can't return it. He thinks to himself that this guy could tell his family how it really was. But he doesn't. And as John walks off, he thinks, Sometime, while the war visited Liberty, I stopped being an observer and became a witness. I've got the evidence. Now where's the court? Yeah, so he's yet again been spurred into action, and we'll have to wait for our next Hellblazer episode to see where that takes him. He's yet again been spurred into action, and we will see if he decides to take him. <laughs> <laughs> right. In our next Hellblazer episode. Yeah, so did you have any final thoughts that you wanted to add about that issue? I think we've torn that one into pretty small pieces at this point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, now it's time for a segment I like to call Hey Sean, Read This, where I blindside Sean with a more recent Vertigo comic. This week, we're going to be taking a look at Sheriff of Babylon number one, which came out last year from Vertigo by writer Tom King. Okay. Okay, so Sean has just read Sheriff of Babylon, issue number one, written by Tom King with art by Mitch Gerads. Yes, I did. Verifiable. <laughs> Is that your review? Oh, that it's a verifiable object? <laughs> yeah. That's not it? saying very much. Yeah, it's a verifiable I, comic book. I thought it was very interesting. It was told in a very intricate way, sort of story construction for construction's sake. It's very self-aware and none of these are things that I mind. Stories okay. that, that fold in on themselves and revel in showing you that they are telling them. That's something I like a lot, actually. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've mentioned being a Neil Gaiman fan on the podcast before, so. 
Well, it's a podcast about Neil Gaiman, kind of. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think that Tom King definitely likes to make you aware of structure. He uses symmetry for dramatic effect, like like story symmetry. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, I don't know if the whole issue is symmetrical. I could go back and look, but it certainly has presentations that are. Most prominently in the sequence where we meet Sophia, which is bracketed by three meetings with the same three people. Right, yeah. And, and he introduces the, the three main characters, Sophia and Christopher and... Um, Nasser. Nasser, right. And there's a sort of, there's a sort of symmetry to the, to the way that he introduces all three of them. Yes. Most prominently, the way that they all get a bang, bang, bang moment. Yeah, yeah. And that ended up being the name of the first trade paperback. Of, oh, really? Of okay. Sheriff of Babylon was Bang, Bang, Bang. All right. Obviously setting up a very complex web of story right from the beginning. The implication is that these three will have to work together to solve this mystery. I don't know if one mystery drives the entire plot or if this is more of an introductory arc. But they also have reasons that they would not get along, obviously. Right. They have conflicting interests, and they also are all connected. Of all the Sheriff of Babylon that has come out, it is all driven by a single mystery. Okay. But there's nothing saying he couldn't write more. You know, Tom King is on exclusive contract with DC, mm. but Vertigo is a DC company, so... Yeah. They do not uh, resolve the murder of Sergeant Ali Fahar in the first trade, then. No. Okay. No. There are two trades, and it seems to be done for now. But it could always it could always come back. Okay. So yeah, I think I mean I want to get more of more of your thoughts than my thoughts, kind of. But well, go um, ahead. But yeah, I think that he is introducing us to a kind of complex a complex world and a complex story that's sort of already in its midst. I do think though that Tom King is maybe like a little better than like a Jonathan Hickman in terms of like. He doesn't do a lot of confusing for the sake of confusing. Mm-hmm. It seemed more designed to allow you to keep up with it than to require multiple readings, as I think Jonathan Hickman does. Yeah, there's a lot of flash, but in a way it's all flash that helps tie it back together. It's This scene connects to the back end of the other scene. That kind of thing. So you can tell, you can tell where the story beats all connect to each other, why they're relevant to each other. I'm not sure what he's ultimately getting at. It's more of an introduction at this point. Right. So when we talked about Savage Things, you know, we said that Savage Things was very murdery. Yes. You know, Savage Things was quite dark, but in a kind of gratuitous way. Uh, Yes. This was dark too, obviously. Did Did you have any of those same objections to it? Not really. Obviously... All three of the characters are closely related to violence. I think Christopher is the only one of the three who's not responsible for a murder in the scene that we meet him in. <laughs> right. And, and you know, the hostage situation is an incredibly common and useful trope. And I'm not... In a way, I'm not even going to... I guess it's not actually a hostage situation. It's a, it's a, a talk-down situation. Yeah, it's sort of a, he's being a negotiator. Yeah, the negotiator sequence. It's it's such a useful trope that I'm not even going to hold it against them that it's extraordinarily common. 
But yeah, in a way, it doesn't feel as gratuitous because we're establishing a world in which violence is everyday and commonplace, and it's a war zone. It's it makes sense. It's not it's not about like some elite subculture of people who kill, <laughs> which is kind of the read that I took on Savage Things. Yeah, so violence is just as omnipresent in this book as it is in Savage Things, but it's less glorified. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Uh, any other comments you want to make before we move on? I'm not sure where to file the art. It's fine. Impressive in some scenes. Yeah, it's it's definitely not flashy. Right. It's sort of it's sort of utilitarian, maybe. Yeah. A little bit, but I think that with a story this complex and an approach like as realistic as this one, utilitarian is kind of what you want, you know? Yeah. You want an illustrator who's going to be able to give you, you know, you need you need different characters to be recognizably distinct from each other, and so you need that kind of level of, like, you need that level of detail, but it's not supposed to be a wow, look at the beautiful art book. You yeah. know, it's supposed to be kind of a... It's supposed to be kind of ugly, so... Yeah, and there's nothing too abstract to it, nothing too abstract that we see in this issue. Right. Very impressive layouts, I will say. Yeah, well, it's Tom King, so you've got yeah. lots of nine-panel pages. All right, well, I guess that just about wraps it up for this week's episode of Vertiguys. Next week, we'll be getting back into our coverage of Preacher with issues two through four as we continue to set up the uh, fantastic tale of Jesse Custer. And we might even find out something a little dangerous about Cassidy. So uh, thanks for listening, and we hope to see you guys there. Hey, if you like our show, you can find more episodes plus show notes and links at vertiguys.blueberry.com. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. Also, if you'd like to, you can get in touch with us at vertiguys at gmail.com. As always, thanks for listening. Thanks.